This episode is brought to you by Not Alone Co. It has been such a pleasure for us at Not Alone Co. to create our little Not Alone community. We want to be able to utilize the messaging on our apparel in order to help facilitate tough and meaningful conversations with your loved ones. Community, conversation, and vulnerability. This is a journey and mental health isn't a battle to be won. We at Not Alone Co. are here to remind you that you are never alone and it's okay to not be okay. Use code NAC10 at checkout for 10% off your order, which helps us donate portions of the proceeds to various mental health charities and foundations. That's code NAC10 at checkout. We love you and you're not alone. All right, Ty, my hard-hitting question for this episode. Give it to me. You got to pick one fast food meal. Which meal are you going with? Okay, so my instant reflection of this question is we do not have the same fast mm-hmm. food as America. So I'm going to go Canadian version. Um, I'm going to talk about my old uh, Bantam midget days in hockey where we would after every practice on Tuesday night, all the boys would go to McDonald's. And this was back when McDonald's pricing was stellar, just elite. You know, a broke high school kid could afford a whole on meal. I used to go there and get a McDouble with no onions, a junior chicken with Thai sauce, mm-hmm. and then a chicken snack wrap, um, the crispy ranch. And then mm-hmm. I chuck a drink in there too. So it's like, I don't know. I love the fries. Don't get me wrong. But also, like if I'm going like a and w with the actual burger buns on their breakfast sandwiches is just it hits so different and yeah i don't know there i could think about wendy's i could think about a lot of things but also like what do you classify as fast food because like you know i love extreme pita uh, but that's not really fast Mm -hmm. food so it it could be fast food you i like your mcdonald's order the uh what was the crunch wrap no, that's Taco Bell. The junior, anything on that dollar menu growing up, I mean, I'm thinking about it like from an after the bar standpoint. I used the to value McDonald's. menu, a dollar yeah. eighty nine for a McDouble and a junior chicken back in the and day. They, yeah, they don't have that anymore, right? I think they have it, but they, I mean, it's like three bucks now, which is just yeah. outrageous. I mean, you're you're right. I feel like obviously American fast food. There's more to pick from. Five Guys is oh. is probably my favorite like just burger and fries they give you the big like paper bag full of fries, fries at the bottom much. like they they like scoop yours with their serving size but then they add in so much extra so and they're like the fresh cut like good good fries i'd say five guys is my favorite but from a nostalgia standpoint like kind of what you said with like we're going back to your hockey days i always remember getting a spicy chicken burger from from wendy's Wow, and that was that was a favorite after a game or whatever driving home. So I think those two, those two are were my you, favorite. Were your parents always taking you if it's a good game? Were your parents being like, "Where do you want to stop?" Like McDonald's, Wendy's, A and W, like kind of thing? Pretty consistently, more for the fact that I feel like my my dad's like pretty health conscious, and not that that's mm-hmm. a healthy option, but I feel like his like mindset was like, "Okay, he just exerted a lot of energy. <laughs> he needs something to refuel yeah. to like recover." Um, so it was pretty consistent. I, I feel like Subway was a, as a, was a big one after games. Remember pizza, pizza. Okay. Now, no, now we got to stick on this topic. What is your Subway <laughs> order? You're walking into Subway in the next 20 minutes. What are you slamming down? It's changed. I, I mean, now I feel like it's changed. <laughs> now I would try to be like somewhat health conscious, which is 
I feel like that's kind of like I got to think most subs are the same there from yeah. a health standpoint. But like when I was growing up, it was always cold. I think it was called the cold cut trio. Cold cut combo. Yeah. Italian okay. herbs and cheese. Cold cut trio or the spicy Italian. And how many sauces face. are you chucking on that thing? I always went with like the subway sauce. Have to. Maybe a little mustard. Like honey mustard or just straight no, mustard? No, just regular, just regular mustard. That's elite. It's, I mean, it's the healthiest it's, sauce. Yeah. Like, you can't go wrong <laughs> with mustard. What about, okay, what last, about um, Well, I don't know. Now Subway's got these 15 new subs that they've created. And like I, I walk into there and I'm just instantly overwhelmed. So I've stuck it with the, it's called the Canuck Classic. It's literally just like a bunch of meat and mm-hmm. then just some cheese. And then I'll put some, you know, pickles, lettuce, spinach, some banana peppers, Subway sauce, smoky honey mustard, salt and pepper. Got a big bada boom. Right. Um, right. Okay, last question, because I know everybody can relate to this. When you're like, whether it's after a hard day's work, whether it's like, you know, you're parched as can be and water's not going to do the trick, you get the option of sipping on any soda pop what are you what are you picking um once again we don't drink pop really (laughs) (laughs) we're we're big on these like olipops oh yeah my favorite drink cola olipop or an orange squeeze i think it's called it's like an orange crush but it's like supposed to be healthier it is healthier but i would say I went through a huge Mountain Dew phase. <laughs> I was, dude, I remember I drinking a ton of Mountain Dew in college. And then I remember I got to pro hockey. I played with a guy who I think mom was in dental or something and like whether a dental hygienist or whatever. And he said, she, he told me a story about like her having this person that like came in and it literally looked like they had like, there was like a bad like drug problem or something. And like, it was all from Mountain Dew and he was calling it like he was calling it like Dew Mouth and that like stuck with me so I stopped drinking Mountain Dew but I used to love it that was my drink that was like the days when everybody found out that chicken McNuggets are actually made disgustingly (laughs) but they taste so good and it just throws you off for a little bit and then you're like okay I can get back into it (laughs) yeah yeah you take a little break and then you're like ah it's too good to pass up but what about you a good Mountain Dew always slaps, but honestly, mm-hmm. every time I think of Mountain Dew, it's just like that Talladega Nights, like, I'm all jacked <laughs> up on Mountain Dew. <laughs> but I got to go Dr. Pepper, man. I think Dr. Pepper is just the one that, is. this is a weird thing, but like, I love, you know, when you drink that first sip of something carbonated and it just like, you get that burp that just like mm-hmm. engulfs your whole body. I don't know why, but like yeah. Dr. Pepper does that to me and I crave it. <laughs> Dr. Pepper is lights out. That's for sure. But anyways, um, yeah, I'm I'm healthy too, uh, listeners. It's not just Riley. I swear I try to take care of my body. Um, I'm drinking a BioSteel right now, and I actually just had a PB&J smoothie. Um, nice. But Ken Daniels is the next guest for our lovely Speak Your Mind podcast. And I'm going to let Riley kind of give the intro as to who Ken is, and then I'll hop in after. Yeah, Ken's the, uh, I think most people know him as the voice of the Detroit Red Wings. I think he started in 98, maybe. And so he had a, he's had an unbelievable broadcasting career. He, hockey night in Canada, he's worked the Olympics, played 
play-by-play radio for the Leafs early in his career. So he's had a really successful career. And I think what sticks out most to me is his activity in the mental health, substance abuse world. He ha- he lost his son tragically to an overdose and just a crazy story. A lot of added elements to add to the heartbreak, um, the failure of the kind of in the medical system, I guess, just sort of put them through the ringer and we get into it. So you can, you can kind of get more detail to the story, but Ken's just an awesome person. I remember him in my time in Detroit, always just being such a good person to talk to and so lively and bubbly and caring and him and Mickey Redmond are, are an amazing duo for the wings there. So yeah, we had a great convo, a lot of cool stories and obviously his activity, like I said, it's, it's pretty special and Ken's just a really great person. Yeah, I think I instantly compare this episode to our Ron McLean chat. Um, just two guys that, first off, I don't know what they're doing for their memory. I don't know if they're drinking a certain soda pop that's just like keeping their memory intact because these two, especially like Kenneth as well. I mean, the memory on this individual, the the charisma, the fact that he can, you know, continue to find silver linings and continue to spread awareness and continue to help generate awareness especially in the addiction space and especially with the foundation they've created the jamie daniels foundation um i recommend you to please go check that out because i mean they do such phenomenal work but it's hard to it's hard to summarize in an intro i guess the gravity of what the daniels family has went through um with the loss of jamie but i think you guys will really enjoy this episode and i think you're able to uh to take a lot from this episode because i did as well so please enjoy our friend, Ken Daniels. And as always, head on over to the Speak Your Mind Instagram. I know uh, Slater's going to wake up soon, so I'll make it quick. But uh, Lick and Kick Fridays, New Tune Tuesdays. Tyler Smith is on a streak right now. Yes, I just referred to myself as a third in the third person. Um, New Tune Tuesdays, on a streak. But uh, Lick and Kick Fridays are always a treat as well. And we always enjoy a little bit of action on that, a little bit of activity. So uh, much love to you all. Make sure to speak your mind and please enjoy our friend, Ken Daniels. All right, Ken, you have been in the Detroit sports world for quite some time. Now, I want to start with a lighthearted question. Give me your Mount Rushmore of Detroit sports figures. Wow. And there was no prep on this, huh? (laughs) Whatsoever. Yeah. Well, the goal. (laughs) Well. I mean, do I can, have to go, can I keep it just to broadcasters? Uh, do I have to we can talk. We can talk you through it, Ken. We can banter a bit about this one. We'll help you figure it out. Well, I don't know. Do we go back, Ty Cobb? Do do we do you go to Barry Sanders? Do we? I I don't know where you go and Gordy Howe and 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 Nick Listrom has to be on there because yeah. I love Nick. So. You know, those would uh, probably keep be it, my guys. Yeah. Keep it to your time in Detroit, right? So it was, oh. was nine, 97. Was that when you got to Detroit? I came in 1997. Yes. Yeah. So let's uh, say like what you have experienced. Well, i tell you the truth, guys. I've really only experienced uh, hockey. I was, uh, let's see, in 06, Craig Monroe hit the home run. 
in in uh, in the series, and and my son Jamie and I were sitting right behind home plate. We wound up on the front page of the Detroit News as as he <laughs> nice. leaned in, as he leaned hit the, to hit the homer, and there we are. And I have that picture uh, in my office today. So maybe I'd have to put him there if we're just keeping yeah. the time here. Boy, that was a yeah. rush at the time more than you'd know. Um, but but certainly for me, boy. Um, and, and Riley, please, if I leave you out, um, uh, <laughs> Pavel, Pavel Datsuk for me yeah. and, and Nick Lidstrom and, oh, God, and, and Eisenman, of course. And, you know, mm-hmm. knowing Gordy Howe and knowing Ted Lindsay, I mean, I knew them so well. I met Gordy Howe in 1985 at a fantasy camp in Lake Placid when I was working radio in Toronto. And I was playing for the Leafs fantasy camp. He's playing for Detroit. So I spent five days with Gordy and Frank Mahovlich and, and all the greats of the game and Johnny Bauer and, and Bill Gadsby. And I'm out there on the ice. And I have video of this because Danny Gallivan was doing the fantasy camp play-by-play, the great voice of the Montreal Canadiens back in the day. And uh, I was killing a penalty, and Gordy's on the power play, bringing it out of the zone. And Gordy turns back, zigs to his left, and I follow him that way to my right. Gordy goes back to his right. I follow him back to my left. Gordy goes back to the left. I follow him to my right. And as he turns back, boom, the elbow right in my head. <laughs> Down goes Daniels, says Gallivan. And uh, later in that shift, I'm trailing Gordy uh, down the wing and Gordy takes takes his stick and goes back like this right behind his head and clips me. And I've got, actually got a picture sitting with Eddie Shack of a welt on the side of my, my head. And of course, are we allowed to swear on this at all? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I said to Gordy, why the fuck did you do that? And Gordy said, you were fucking there. That was it. <laughs> you know, yeah, and that's Gordy. God. So I got a Gordy Howe high stick at that fantasy camp with a wealth to prove it and video with Gordy elbowing me in the head. So those are moments that you never forget. And that was in the early 1980s at a fantasy camp where I also got pictures with Daryl Hall and John Oates because I drove up and they were my faves along with Earth, okay. Fire and the Beatles growing up. And I drive in and it said at the Holiday Inn in Lake Placid, Hall and Oates in concert tonight. And I said, are you shitting me? And out of the on the tour buses, they're ready to go over to the Lake Placid Arena, where of course the gold medal was won in 1980. Uh, five years earlier, I get a picture with Daryl Hall and John Oates, and played tennis with John Oates that afternoon because Daryl just stayed no in his way. room. So all those times come together. So uh, that was before I got to Detroit, but that's how long ago I knew Gordy. So even if there's a, a Mount Rushmore from my time there, I still have to squeeze in Gordy somewhere in there, and Ted too, for that matter. Yeah. I mean, it's like such a, I feel like, because I started in Detroit and that was sort of, I, I was almost took it for granted when I was there. Like you, you just, I mean, you adjust to your surroundings and you see all these guys walking through the room and like so many, so many legendary players and just, and people in general, like it, and then you leave and you go to other teams and you just realize that it's not like that everywhere. And it just speaks volumes as to what that organization is about and, and the culture that was built there. So you've got to see that kind of uh, for for a long time now. And I, I'm curious, just like what sticks out to you about the Red Wings organization and, and how they maintain that consistency and building good players. But like the people is, is, is the thing that has stuck out to me. I mean, I was just at Dylan Larkin's wedding and, um, I mean, like Beamer, Todd Beam was mm-hmm. there, and Jr. and Paulie and Pete and Russ and um, all these people. But like, 
they've held their jobs there for so long and they're just such good people. And there's obviously reasoning behind that, you know? So I guess to me, I'm curious what your thoughts are, what it means to be part of that organization and how they've maintained that. Yeah, we always talk about the the original six and what it means. And even when I was coming to Detroit in 1997, immediately it hit me and I'd been working for Hockey Night in Canada. I did Toronto Maple Leafs radio. I grew up with the Maple Leafs as, as a big fan uh, in Toronto. Uh, so I knew coming to Detroit, I knew about the history of the game. And then you come to Detroit and those who are already in place. And, you know, when you, you have Scotty Bowman there, I mean, even think about it through the time that I was even in, in the business before Detroit and there was Cliff Fletcher I worked with in Toronto and Pat Burns in Toronto. And then I come to Detroit and there's Kenny Holland who was just becoming general manager even though he'd been there for a long time. His first year as GM was 97-98 uh, after the second cup, he, although he's there for the first one as assistant. Um, and then I, I get to work with, uh, with Ken Holland and, and Scotty Bowman. And, and later through Mike Babcock and, and just through the years and Jimmy Devolano. I mean, that's, that's where I, I, I think, you know, with Mr. and Mrs. And, and they were so wonderful. And to me from, from day one, and you had those conversations with Mr. Illich, who for some reason always called, hey, Scooter. You know, I just <laughs> love talking to Mr. I. Because I love that voice. And whenever you talk to, to Mr. Illich and the history of the game and you get to meet Gordy and you get to meet Ted. And then there's Ken Holland and Scotty Bowman and there's Steve and then there's Shanny, you know, and Nick Lidstrom. I think it just brings you in everybody mm -hmm. together that you don't want to disappoint every, anyone. You don't want to disappoint anybody. And you just try to mind your P's and Q's. And, and I remember back in the day, it's different today, guys, because there's that youth factor that when I came, although now they can look at me as the old guy or Mickey as the old guy, when I came along at some 40 years old, and I said this to Scotty one day too, um, the difference being with young kids coming into the league then, um, and you're a head coach then like Scotty Bowman. I don't think Scotty Bowman had to worry about the 21-year-olds, the 22-year-olds, whether it be Boyd Devereaux or any of those guys who were coming along. You had guys who were closer to my age at the time, right? Brendan Shanahan and Larry Murphy and Steve Eisenman and, and all those guys coming in. They could look after the young guys in the room. Now the young guys control the room where the mm -hmm. coaches have to adapt. Back then, and I said that to Scotty, you didn't have to worry about it. If a young guy wasn't doing something right with the group, it would be Steve or Fatisov or Larry Onoff or Shannon. They were all in their late 30s. Now you're in your late 30s, you're pretty much out of the league. I mean, honestly, yeah. from 34 or 35, you're out of the league, and the average career is four to five years. So I think it was different than how the game was handled. So you didn't want to disappoint Eisenman or anyone else and I'll tell you when, when we used to go out you know on the road at night now I'm never with the guys because the guys are so much younger they don't want to hang with me but back in the day I could go to a movie with Brendan Shanahan or Larry Murphy or Marty LaPointe and I remember some nights going out we'd go see a movie maybe at eight o'clock it would end at 10 30 and I said do you guys want to want to go for drinks and they say well you know and I remember I won't say which one said to me you know what we haven't been playing great, and, I, and Steve's out. We don't want to go after 11. We're going to go back. We all did. Went to the hotel because they were worried what Steve Eisenman might think, even though he was one of them. Mm -hmm. He was the leader. He was the captain. They didn't want to disappoint him. I don't think you want to disappoint anybody then. So you just knew your place when you came, and I think that's the culture. That's where it comes from. And I, the league has changed. 
uh, with, yeah. with so many. I mean, obviously the team's now at 32, and back then I don't even know how many were in there. I don't know if it was 25 or whatever it was at the time. Uh, but it's just changed now. And and who's controlling the room and who does what? The young guys control and your captain at a younger age now, just like Dylan, captain mm-hmm. at, a young, at a younger age. And uh, when Connor McDavid, captain at a younger age. I just think it's it's a different different game but I, I i believe the culture from ken holland and scotty bowman and even and when steve was there um even steve had to grow with it and scotty bowman <laughs> changed steve i mean there were the you know he was being dealt to ottawa let's face it it was at the time but he changed his game and look how prolific he became and it made the red wings into winners because he would do it because he knew this was best for the team and it is mm-hmm. a team game and i think now a lot of the guys even, yeah, you you're deserve the money, you deserve to a, a certain percentage of the cap, but how many guys really think team first? Um, leave some for the other guy. I know you don't yeah. want to, you're entitled because the Players Association is on you to get what you can, but if you truly want to win, and I think it was like that back then, I remember when Brett Hall came and Robitaille came in 02, and, and Ken Holland said, hey, nobody's making more than Nick. Nick was mm-hmm. making seven or whatever it was. I can see, and Marion Hosa came for that. I don't know if that's the same anymore. Right, that's very true. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, I'm I'm a huge Penguins fan, uh, and obviously you've had your, your fair share of Penguins Red Wings uh, situations. <laughs> but uh, I think, yeah, same thing with. I can't speak for anybody with Penguins, but I think same thing. I, I mean, it goes to show with the Penguins too. I mean the the way that they've structured those deals and the, the way they were able to, you know, by, by committee with every single team that, uh, that they were able to produce in the winning culture was, uh, yeah, it's, it, it seems like it's kind of like that same format where it, yeah. it, it, you're bought in and you're accountable for, for not just the on ice, but everything. And um, I, I definitely want to, I mean, now like being able to listen to you, it, it just brings up, um, I want to compare to you to Ron McLean because it's just, it's, <laughs> it's so, amazing and fascinating to hear you talk even about the Gordie Howe high stick and like those times and like all those memorable moments with all these legends and honestly like if I could just sit at a dinner table with you and Ron I think I would be happy because the the wisdom the memories the the culture that you guys have all been able to experience and obviously you're you've been with the Red Wings for for so long now but before that you know, coming into the broadcaster space, coming into that space, it is a team with Hockey Night Canada, it is a team with CBC, but it's still, it's different. And so, I mean, talk about that drive, talk about where that began for you. Was it the classic case of sitting in front of a TV and just, you know, calling games as a young kid or how did that even kind of begin? hundred percent. And I, I talked about that in uh, the book I wrote for Triumph Books, If These Walls Could Talk, Detroit Red Wings. And a lot of it was about that sitting in the family den uh, when I was eight years old. And that would have been the year the Maple Leafs last won the Stanley Cup. That's how long ago that was, in 1967. And we had uh, M- Mrs. Townsend was our housekeeper because my parents were on vacation. And I had two older brothers and a sister. And we were all huge Maple Leaf fans. I was just getting into hockey then at that time. And uh, I remember because she was from Montreal and the Leafs played the Canadians in the final and uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs won the Stanley Cup. Well, Mrs. Townsend was pretty upset for the next two days. Our housekeeper, the Montreal lost. And my older brothers are ribbing her. And I said, boy, this hockey thing is really something. And uh, the next year, I just got into it on my black and white television. Uh, the, the days, guys, when you actually had to get up from your chair and go change the channel <laughs> physically on the television. Um, I just got into hockey. And then through the years, when the Leafs came on, Hockey Night in Canada on Saturday in the 
odd weekend, you'd get Danny Gallivan, but I was listening to Foster Hewitt and then Bill Hewitt, and I would do play-by-play in front of the TV, and then my parents probably got tired of that by 9.30 <laughs> on a Saturday night and sent me to bed, and uh, I was probably mixing up Kelly and Keon, uh, 4 and 14, I'm not sure on the numbers. Maybe they didn't like Oh, he sucks at play-by-play. Anyway, I'd go up to bed, listen to the end of the game and even weeknights, and I still have my radio over here. It was a little yellow twist Panasonic radio, and I'd put it under my pillow. And on a, on a good night, you could also get KMOX St. Louis 1120, and I'd listen to the great Dan Kelly, who just once in a while I'll hit a call, and Mickey will turn to me, and I'll know what he means. It sounded like Dan Kelly. And even this year when Jake Wallman scored, we were down 4 nothing in Pittsburgh, and Jake Wallman scored in overtime. And he got that goal, and I said, what a selly, because of celebration, the dance that he did. And uh, uh, when I made that call, Mickey said to me after the game, he said, that was Danny. And I'd have to listen to it again because I didn't quite hear it. And then I listened to the callback because you can listen to it instantaneous because it's all over the place on social media. I said, damn, you're right. I actually hit a call where it sounded like Danny Gallivan. So one out of the thousand goals that I call was actually really good. And and sometimes you hit the one where you sound like Dan Kelly. So those are the ones that impressed me. Those are the guys I grew up listening to. So when I go to bed with that radio underneath my pillow, I say to when I do speaking engagements, I literally dream my job because I fell asleep listening to the play-by-play of Dan Kelly or Bill Hewitt or Foster Hewitt on the radio, which is a great training background. And from that day on, I wanted to be in broadcasting from eight, nine, 10 years old. And at the age of 17, uh, Brian Williams, not the Brian Williams in the US, but Brian Williams in Canada, who did many of the Olympics and was my idol growing up. I wrote him a letter at the age of 17. He called my house. My mother said, Brian Williams is on the phone. I couldn't believe it. He said, come on down to the CBC and, you know, I can't offer you anything, but come watch the sports cast. I called Brian once a month and uh, at the age of 25, um, Brian Williams went to network. I replaced him at CBC local television. So dreams do come true. I I just, I went to York University because in Canada at the time we had grades, grade 13, it went to in high school. So when I went to York University, for me, I called it grade 14, 15 and 16, because all I really wanted to do was get into broadcasting. Uh, And the radio station at York University was bankrupt at the time. And I graduated with a degree in political science and English, all minors, whatever, and probably some sociology. But Brian Williams had told me, Go to school, go to university. When you apply for a job, they'll see you got a degree. They see you put in the hard work. And uh, I just sold myself. I called every radio station I could in Penetanguishene in Northern Ontario and many. And in Oshawa, just through people I knew who knew people who knew people. And someone in Oshawa, Ontario hired me with no experience. And that's where I learned. I made plenty of mistakes. I always asked lots of questions. My dad always said, there's no such thing as a stupid question, only stupid people who believe there is. So I asked uh, as many questions as I could, and that's what it's about. And I was there for less than a year and then got offered the overnight job at CJCL in Toronto doing news, sports. Versatility is key. I've made myself as versatile as I could be. So if they're missing a sportscaster, Ken can do it. He can fill in. And I wound up working City Hall Beat, the Ontario Legislature. I did everything. And ultimately, in uh, 1989, January of 1990, uh, the, I had done the Olympics in 88 in Seoul because I, from radio, I transitioned, got the job in TV, 
local TV and then was doing the Olympics in 1988, three years after I got into television. All sports that I knew nothing about from cycling and velodrome and judo and tennis. And, I mean, I knew about them, but not to call them. And mm-hmm. then uh, a year later, Alan Davis, the program director at CJCL, it was not the fan yet, Canada's first all sports radio station. That would be a couple of years later. And uh, Alan said, Ken, I need someone to fill in for Joe Bowen on Maple Leafs radio to do play by play. Now, at this time, I just started on Hockey Night in Canada. I wanted to be Ron McLean. I thought at the time that, uh, okay, maybe play-by-play would come. I'd done it in Seoul, and I wasn't great at it. I mean, there's a way to do play-by-play. We can talk about that, and I wasn't great at it. But anyway, he said, Ken, I need someone to fill in for Joe Bowen doing Leafs Radio. It was Toronto, Boston. It was uh, in two nights. And I said, um, I said, Alan, I just bought a house. I'm moving. And Alan said, I suggest you get someone else to move your friggin' ottoman. <laughs> I'm giving you a chance to do Toronto Maple Leafs play-by-play. And I did. And Andy Brickley, who I wound up working with down the road, scored the overtime winner for Boston. Of course, the Leafs lost that night. But as I'm doing the game, I thought, the last thing I need here is overtime. Let me get out of here (laughs) in one piece. They go to overtime. Boston wins. Anyway, I never listened to that tape from January of 1990. I think it was either 90 or 89. Never listened to that tape until I got the job in Detroit. Just you didn't want to, like, hear that. Yeah. I thought it sucked. Although when I listened to it and the night I got the job in Detroit, I I listened to it and I thought, you know what? It wasn't half bad. Uh, There Uh are things you learn. And from there, I wound up, I was hosting Hockey Night in Canada, uh, you know, from 89 through about 93 and 94. And John Shannon, who was a longtime executive producer of Hockey Night in Canada, John called me and he said, Ken, I'd met him once or twice on the road doing Maple Leafs hockey. Because after that first game, they actually hired me to do about 15 a year as a fill-in when Joe went to TV. So I did, and, and I'd met John Shannon uh, a few nights. We were in Minnesota because he was producing Minnesota North Stars hockey. Remember the old building, the Met Center, with all the different colored seats in there? We'd, we'd go for dinner and, and after the game, and I met John Shannon, and I guess he took a liking to me and listened to some games. And he, in 94, said, Ken, I'm coming to Hockey Night in Canada to be executive producer. I hear you're up for the job in Vancouver. And I said, well, I'm up for it. But I, I don't think that I'm going to get it. Jim Houston, who was in Toronto at the time, was thinking of going back west. If Jim Houston wanted the job, it was his. And he said, I'll tell you what, I'd like you not to go anyway. I'd like to bring you from radio to TV, play-by-play, on Hockey Night in Canada. You just have to do one thing. And I said, what's that? He said, you have to stop doing radio. I don't want any bad habits, meaning too descriptive. And mm-hmm. I said... Okay, you got it, because at the time I, I knew the radio station was losing the rights anyway to Toronto Maple Leafs hockey, so I was going to be out of work anyway, and that's how <laughs> it happened. And I wound up in TV, was there, and then three years later, I uh, found about the opening in Detroit. So so that's like a thing, radio versus TV, it's like, is that's a common thing, is yeah, like a little more descriptive on the radio, because yeah, what is the, like, just because there's a visual to it with TV, and you're giving your viewer sort of the opportunity to just watch or what's that yep, for exactly you? Yeah. like you, you know if you're on you know like on on radio and a lot of people do it the leafs or the red wings are moving left to right across your dial okay mm-hmm. it just gives you a visual you're in the car you can see there are the the pucks on the right wing offensive corner in behind the goal left side now back right. to the left point over to the right side you don't have to do all that like people say when you to me when you do play-by-play on tv how do you know all the names and i'll give you a secret 
you do know them all, but I don't memorize them all before the game. I know our team, obviously, by how they skate for the most part, you will screw up once in a while. And you're so far mm-hmm. away now in some buildings like Edmonton, it's a guess. I think there's players down there. <laughs> Who the hell built this broadcast booth? Anyway, it, it does happen. So you just don't have to be as descriptive. So if, you know, the Red Wings are playing the Penguins and, uh, you know, and Pittsburgh shoots it down the ice. Well, I don't have to say so-and-so is back to get it. Uh, whomever may go back, Jake Wallman or Sider may go back to get the puck. Meantime, I'm seeing who the Penguins are changing. So maybe mm-hmm. it's Brian Rust comes over the board or Riley Shane when you mm-hmm. were in Pittsburgh comes over the board. So I'll, I'll see you come over the boards and then I can know who's out there for the Penguins while I know Wallman's going back to get it. People on TV can see that. So right. the camera's following them. So you can just pause, get the other guys who are coming out. You may, if you haven't seen the guy in a period and a half, because, you know, he's a left winger who hadn't played, um, you may look down mm-hmm. and yeah, right, so-and-so. So that's how you do it. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Do you have, is there like ever a moment where during this process, I mean, I feel like once you got to the Red Wings, you were probably pretty confident in your abilities, but like, just that idea of second guessing yourself when you're talking or when you're like, you're not feeling certain about if this is what you should be doing, but then something happens to build your confidence back up and it builds momentum. Does anything like, does that stick out to you at all about an occasion during your career where it got a little difficult, but you kind of had to, had to fight through? Um, Maybe doing the Olympics. Sure. Back in 88 for CBC Mm -hmm. television, you know, I'd only got into TV, went from radio as I said, you know, doing everything. And then you're hired in TV, so you're doing the late night sports, and then they throw you into the Olympics. Um, so those were when you're unsure, and you find a way to get through it. And then you say, if I can get through this, just like in life, you have mm-hmm. obstacles that you have to meet and, and get through that. And that gives you confidence for the next one. Like I like to say when I do speaking engagements, I say, there's no such thing as luck. Luck is when preparation meets opportunity, right? So Mm -hmm. if you're going for a job and you've prepared all your life, or even it's what I'm doing now, or I've done this, I've done that, and someone says, I need you to do this. Well, all the preparation, all those little things you did, whether it be studying or anything else, will lead you said, it may be tough, but I can do this because I did all this. So were you in the right place at the right time, like I was in my life to get that opportunity? Sure. Were you lucky? Maybe. But if I didn't prepare as I went along, when that spot came to seize that moment and all those opportunities, you got through them because you passed them because you were ready. All those lead up to the big one. And that's how people advance in jobs. So I I think in in Seoul, uh, I remember when Bob Moyer, very tough executive producer and a gruff guy, and I'm a young kid in my 20s. And I came back to the broadcast center and he said, I need you to do judo tonight judo Canada's playing in this match whatever and I said okay I don't remember the participants anyway hop in a taxi and and here's the book on judo I'm reading the handbook on judo so I finally got to the third page knowing when Ipan is called a pin when you flip a guy in a certain way and he lands and he wins the match I'm going to have no clue exactly how to do an Ipan to really know that it's over so it would have been like when Kane got the winning goal for Chicago against Philadelphia. No one knew it was yeah. him to actually call it a goal. This is what this is like. How do you know it's actually over? So he <laughs> said, and, and also go find an analyst. Go find a color commentator who can help you call the match for CBC television. Holy cow. So Germany wasn't in this final. And I got, 
met a German guy there who said, yeah, yeah, no, my English is good. So, okay, he came in. I said, do me one favor. When you see if the match does end on an epon, on a pin, so to your point, how nervous you were, or that was the moment that I'll never forget. Um, I said, do me a favor. If the guy throws him in a certain way and he hits the mat, say, Ken, he's done it. It's over. And I said, epon. It's exactly how it happened. So we had already rehearsed it, and he hit me. Ken, it's over. I get back to the broadcast studio, and Bob Moyer said, boy, for a guy who didn't know crap about judo, you sure pulled that one off. <laughs> Damn right I did. And the That's other story hilarious. I'll tell you is I, I, I believe it was Seoul, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think it was Land in 96. I think it was Seoul in 88 when Chris Ebert played a tennis woman in the first ever match when tennis became an Olympic sport. And Chris Everett is there. Now, Bud Collins, the great voice of tennis on NBC, we weren't calling all the matches live at that time. So I go to the tennis center to call. And CBC, thankfully, was in the tier right behind where Bud Collins was sitting. So Bud's calling the match live for NBC at the time in the afternoon or whatever, 15 hours difference back to uh, Toronto at the time or across Canada. And I'm listening to Bud Collins call it for NBC and I'm writing down everything he says about Chris Everett and how she's <laughs> handling the match, whether it's serve and volley and coming up to the net. So when they came to me live and I've got to do a recap of the event and call someone, took everything Bud Collins told me to the point that I'll have to say it's not what you know, but you've got to know who to sit behind. And I knew to sit behind Bud Collins. So when you're nervous, and again, that's because opportunities have arrived. You know you can get through something. And that's what I tell kids in life. There's going to be, you're going to hit roadblocks. You've got to find a way to get through it and be confident. Yeah. You're always going to be nervous. I, I, I'm getting, I get excited before games, but I'm never nervous. Yeah. You're just excited for it to happen. I remember yeah. going to see Johnny Johnny Carson in Los Angeles in the late 80s, just traveling through LA with a buddy. We went to the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He came out and spoke to the audience before. And someone asked him, and it stuck in my head all those years. They said, do you get nervous? He said, I never get nervous, I get excited. Because if you're not excited, get out of the business. So yeah. anything you're doing, be excited, have the passion. And Kenny Holland always said that to me. He said, you know what I love about you? You got the passion, as Kenny would say. You got the passion. And Kenny has the passion. And Jimmy Devolano had the passion. And Scotty mm -hmm. Bowman had the passion. And these were the people I was around every day. And Pat Burns and Cliff Fletcher in Toronto. And we, we'd go out at night and have dinners together. These were the people I had the opportunity to learn from about the game. So mm -hmm. how do you not soak that all in and then apply it? And hopefully the kids that are coming up now don't think they're entitled and have the passion for what they do. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's so interesting. I was fortunate to take television broadcasting. So it's interesting to even like, you know, hear your difference between radio and television and, you know, being able to, to see some productions and go to the Sportsnet studios and to watch how it all works. And I mean, it's so true. It's just a constant, it's constant networking and it's constant, you know, absorption of being able to add to your toolbox. And I think, you know, being a yes man like you were with judo and all the other sports mm -hmm. you called at the Olympics, I mean, you can always look back on that. And there could be times where it's fun to just add little, you know, judo comments in or add little things <laughs> that you have learned over those years. So I appreciate you telling us that because I think it is so true. I think, you know, kids nowadays, you got to be a yes man. You got to want to connect and you got to be excited about it. And you got to be excited about whatever it is you're doing. Because if you do have the passion for it, even though if it's not going to make you a million dollars, I mean, I it's true. You still got to strive for it and you still got to try it out and you still got to take these opportunities head on. So um, I didn't have a question, Riley, but I just wanted to comment no, I, on that because I, so I think you're right there too, Ty. Like 
it's good to do things that you're not totally sure about. Like it teaches you a lot about yourself. Like I even see it with like in sports and with hockey, like you get a lot of guys that just get so obsessed with the game and they don't want to try something new or learn something too. And that fear of looking stupid, but it, it is such a good thing and it, it's such a good thing to conquer. Um, so it's like, you, it, it can be so healthy for you to seek out those opportunities. Right. Yeah. Um, like, I think that's even like why we're doing this. Like, it's just like, we're not that we weren't at the start. We weren't the most fresh at talking and we were like struggling to put together valuable questions, but the more you go and the more you learn from other people, it helps you so much. And I mean, so much of this life is, is knowing how to talk to one another and, and communicating. So all it is, is just brushing up on those skills. So, yeah, I don't know if you have anything to say about that, well, but. Well, it is, you know, even jobs you get into, we're, we're mentioned Ron McLean earlier and, you know, I've watched Ron all those years. I mean, I watched many before, before Ron and Dave Hodge, who hosted one of our foundation roasts, the, the Jamie Daniels foundation roast and Dave Hodge hosted that that meant so much to me to have Dave Hodge host that. He was the host of Hockey Night before Ron McLean. I grew up watching Dave Hodge. I mean, he was my idol. I think that's when I first wanted to get into Hockey Night. Behind, besides listening to those guys, it's it's Dave Hodge and how he spoke and how you can use um, five words where many people will use thirty. I think you're always learning along the way. I was hosting you know the supper time and late night sports when i got into television after radio in 1985 and 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 got the break and auditioned and heard there was an opening and and one night then i had to leave early one night and ron mclean i i called ron could you fill in on the supper time sports and there i am you know typing away back in the days guys when there were typewriters i wish i still had my underwood <laughs> typewriter i threw that out i'm so upset what a relic anyway um and that's what i would do even in college i'd write all my own essays the, the, the typing course I took, which would be a computer course now or learn on a keyboard, in, in eighth grade was the best thing I could have ever done. Honestly, I was typing everything and typing up fake sportscasts growing up. I'd, I'd be talking to myself on the, uh, you know, in, in the bathroom. My mother would walk by and say, oh, I hear Ken's uh, studying for do television again or radio. I'd be reading to myself. I'd take the newspaper and read out loud. Anyway, so I was typing away my sportscast and you put it in the teleprompter. So for those who don't know, it comes up in the lens. So it's called auto so the words follow you as you're you've already typed it out so ron was filling in for me mclean one night on cbc and i said ron here you go and they need the scripts by so and so i said well i'm not giving them a script and i said okay you have about five and a half minutes so he'd throw to some tape items of course he'd just have a couple of words and a piece of paper and he ad-libbed the friggin' thing perfectly now i was you know ron's ron's a year or two younger than me but he'd been doing it a lot longer um so here and I, later i i had taped it on my vhs at home uh, that's how long ago it was and i recorded ron i go there he is not in teleprompter just ad-libbing the whole thing perfectly so i was a little envious of that but you do learn to your point you do learn from mm -hmm. people as you go on how to do things and then i ended up going on live hits all the time and you just make a couple of notes where you won't have teleprompter and you learn to ad-lib you learn to be natural you learn to when to look to camera look at your guests look to camera not too much as a third person but talk to you get all little things that you don't even think about but you yeah. watch everybody just like you guys i mean playing the game right you watched other people you watch those you idolize you pick up little things you try it in practice no different than what we do it's the same thing. yeah same thing yeah so 100%. I, uh, I think, I mean, this doesn't get talked about enough, but especially individuals that are on TV, individuals that are calling things, individuals that, you know, are doing play by play, 
let's not sugarcoat it. You do always have to be on. You do, you know, you have to be Ken Daniels. You have to be, you have to be ready. You do have to be excited. You have to have that passion still. But let's be honest, there are days when it's not, when you just feel like you just don't have it maybe. And I'm, I'm super curious because routine, I think is, is I'm not going to say every ind- individual, you know, have a routine, but I'd imagine that routine has become a pivotal part of, of your day-to-day life, especially, you know, you, you understand the grind, you understand the process. I mean, are there things that as you look back on, as you learn more and more with the new kids coming in, are there things that you've implemented into your routine that really do help you be Ken Daniels on a night by night basis when you do have to be on? I've never had a day where I haven't loved it. Where I haven't felt on. Yeah. Never. I love that. Not in this job. <laughs> I love that. You you may have I may have to go to days where I've got to do a speaking engagement because I'd lost my son and I'm speaking about that, or some days, you know, I'm having a Jamie day, as I call it. And yeah. you're maybe you gotta do it because you're saving lives and you're telling people Jamie's story. But after you've told that story so many times, you're not in the mood today. And mm-hmm. you know, I'll be driving and then I I I believe in the afterlife. I believe in mediums. I've contacted Jamie before and my son used to drive on the steering wheel like this all the time with his hand over and something will hit me in my head and I go like this. He goes, I got you, dad, as you'd always say. And I think about him or I see a sign on a license plate that tells me Jamie's with me. Um, I got inducted into the Detroit Historical Society and as I'm driving down there, there's a license plate right in front of me. It said, Jamie, I believe in that stuff. So that will always inspire me. But in terms of doing play by play, there's never been a day that I may not be at my best, I may have a cold, I may feel crappy, but any day I get to go to the rink and be part of that. Maybe some mornings I go, you know what, I've seen this team three times, I'm not going to the morning skate today, I'll call their coach if I have his number. Uh, You know, I used to be able to call Hitchcock or guys I knew around the league or, you know, other guys or torts, uh, guys who have no one through and you have that relationship, you can call them, I don't feel like going downtown this morning, coming back, it's bad weather, those things. But my preparation, morning, morning call with our crew, that inspires me. What do you got tonight? Anytime I have a story to tell, I love to tell it. It's inspirational. So I love those stories, and it's all about storytelling, and I don't think our business does it enough now. And in the days when I started in the business, you'd have, because there weren't hurry-up face-offs. You know what that likes, Riley, when the, Tyler, when the ref comes over, you got 20 seconds, drop the damn puck. So <laughs> in the old days, and if you ever listen to the old black and white days, my God, Bill Hewitt, you just pause for 20 seconds because they're waiting for the guys to get there for the face-off. <laughs> now they're all in there, let's go. You know, on an icing call, no, 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 can't change lines, let's go. Don't, you don't want to let them get rested. You You've got to be tired now. So you are trying to get a story in where I'll go down to a morning skate. And this is also what inspires me. I'll go down to a morning skate. And let's say I'm talking to Riley or Riley tells a story about his childhood. And and I'm in the room listening to him tell the story. And and Riley is succinct as you may be. Maybe you're telling the story over two minutes. And it goes to a bunch of different things. As I'm listening in my head. And again, this is what the passion is. I will say, okay, and I'll make a few notes. And I'll say, how do I get this story in 20 seconds? Because that's all I got coming out of a break. Or I say, mm-hmm. you know what? I need 30 seconds, guys, for this story. And maybe on the morning call, they built a storyboard with some stats or some video or maybe one of the guys from Instagram. I need, I need 28 seconds in my head. I've written, I need about 28 seconds because I've timed it in my head to tell this story. Okay, we won't go seven seconds to break. We'll go two. We'll give it the extra five on the other side. We should be able to get it in. Great. That inspires me. Every day, how can I tell this story? in a way 
that's going to inspire some kid out there. Oh, well, that's really cool. Oh my, that's how he got into the game. That's mm -hmm. how he picks his sticks. That's how he chose the number because his maybe his brother passed away, you know, or I'm telling the Jimmy Hayes story for Kevin Hayes and I spoke to his dad, Kevin. You know, there's heartache in this game too that people can appreciate the players have a life. So if I can get, I may come into a game with six stories. If I get three in, that are told well, and I'll tell Mickey about them ahead of time and go, Mick, next whistle, maybe we'll come back to it and you play off it. These are things where some things are orchestrated, but you can't go into a game with no game is in a briefcase because the game is so quick and it happens so fast, that's the game. But if you can tell a story and get a shot of a guy on the bench, and when we come back, the inspirational story of so-and-so and his yeah. family, and then hopefully people stay tuned, you come back, and now can I get that story in without rushing it? but get it in 25 seconds. That's my rush. And mm -hmm. that's where out of the game, you remember a great goal or something else. But if you're telling a story that somebody go, Oh my God, isn't that something that's wonderful. And that, that, yeah. that inspires me. Yeah. I think that makes you so good at what you do, Ken. And it's like, it's like people watch the game. They know they're going to get a hockey game. They know they're going to get a, a play by play person. that's going to describe what's going on on the screen. But like, to add that extra element of bringing someone in that's telling something that maybe they don't know anything about. I think that's a really, a really cool concept. And it's, it's part of sports. It's a storytelling piece too. Of all the teams I've played, I, my, my old man is a pretty harsh critic to uh, the voice that's on the TV when he doesn't, when he's not in the rink and he was always, he always loved you and Mick. So uh, well, thank I think you. that's a good, a good representation. So Thank you. Um, and you know what? And I know I'm riding Mick's coattails, Riley, okay? I, I, I know that. Everybody loves Mickey, and I know that. And, and I know Mike Goldberg, who was here the one year before I came for the Red Wings Cup in 96-97. Uh, there may have been some friction there, and Mike went on to have a great career and do an MMA and, and pay-per-view and all that. But I knew when I came in here that, that Mick was the star. Uh, I came from Hockey Night, filling in for Ron McLean on occasion and working with Don Cherry. So I know who the stars are. And uh, when you know, I was with Hockey Night in Canada and the play-by-play -play guy would be 80% and the color guy would be 20 I knew when I came here to Detroit, it was going to be either 50-50, it might be 60-40, but it sure as hell wasn't 80-20 because I knew <laughs> Mick liked to step in and I had to back out. And you know mm -hmm. what? Honest to goodness, I mean, to have a friend like Mickey all these years... And we went through two bouts with lung cancer, one in each lung. And mm -hmm. we've been together now 27 years. And I know every time he walks into the gondola and he says, Kenny boy, it's like he's saying, honey, I'm home. And yeah. we'll talk during hockey season. I mean, you know, he doesn't do every game on the road now because of celiac disease and it's hard for him to travel. Um, we talk almost every other day and know he gets, we get busy sometimes in the summer, but we'll talk at least twice a week. So it's just like to be a best friend of someone mm -hmm. you work with. And when Jamie passed and I remember going to Mickey's house, as he always says, sitting in the kitchen and telling him and just the caring. And when he had to do some somewhat util, util, eulogize Jamie uh, when I wasn't there, that was hard, but we've mm -hmm. been, so close all these years that it's so wonderful. And I, I, some guys in the business have that and many don't, unfortunately, to be that close with your broadcast partner who you're working with more closely. I mean, you know, both our wives are our friends too. Uh, his wife and my wife, they've gone away to Paris together. So to have that relationship, Mickey, when he has, he was filling in the Ontario hockey league, uh, doing some games, um, 
across the border and for Flint, I believe it was a Windsor, but he and Gowen had to go across where we'd watch his dog. So his dog would come over. I'd stay at his house uh, when he couldn't be there. If Arlene was away, it's just to have that relationship mm-hmm. is just wonderful in this business. It's really something. It's awesome. Yeah. No, it's, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. He's, I still, I always remember him calling me the big, the big Irishman. <laughs> yeah. The, oh yeah. Well, he loved you. And Riley, honest to God, I, I, I know the last game at the Joe when you hadn't scored all year and to score two that night and the last goal at Joe Lewis Arena. We were so happy for you. Everyone was because you didn't deserve to go all year with no goals. And it was sort of crazy. And you know what? Mm-hmm. Somehow you sort of remind me, we were talking before about, about Michael Rasmussen. And it was funny when Rass had a tough time and coming into the league in the beginning and you know, and some Sometimes you rush too early. I thought he was going back to junior and they're going to do that. And Ken Holland said, yeah, uh, you know, he's uh, Rass is going to go back to junior. Then all of a sudden he isn't. Yeah. I thought mm-hmm. that's really weird. And they changed course. And I think it, was it Babs at the time or Blash? I can't remember. Whatever they decided, he, you know, he wasn't going back. And I, oh, I don't know if he's ready for that. And then, uh, but maybe three years ago, we were, the social media team was doing the new year's resolutions and uh, Rass came off the ice and they said, what's your New Year's resolution? And Rass walked by and Michael and he said, to get better at hockey. <laughs> and we all laughed at the time, just like you, Ty and Riley, like you are now. We laughed at the time, but you know what? Boy, a year later, did he ever get better at hockey? Because the passion and how he applied it. And we're all so happy for him. And just like we were for you that night and two big bodies who aren't necessarily goal scorers, but boy, you gave it your all and as does Rass and now he's fine in his way. And I think we love stories like that. So that, that yeah. last night at, at the Joe was a wonderful. I think that was Zetterberg's thousandth game too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So I, I think you, yeah. you, you, you outdid Zetterberg game 1000, <laughs> but I, I well, think you're, you're had, two that night, man. No, he had the last goal up until I scored with like, three minutes left or something so i kind of felt bad that i and did you have the thousandth puck? game last game of the joke did you uh, keep no it? they they took the puck they took my stick they took the puck right away and okay said it was going to the archive so i don't that was the last of them so well it's yeah. probably maybe it's a little caesar somewhere in those archives but no we we were so yeah. happy for you i just wanted you to know that so that, yeah, that's also that, part of the story of the game right that's the story of the game where we can even mm-hmm. tell that in a game and how happy we were. And I think that came across beyond the, just the excitement, I guess it was the Devils, and playing New Jersey in last game at the Joe. But no, what you did that night, and you can laugh about that because you probably knew, oh, it's about time, right? And, and mm-hmm. the monkey's off my back. And to score on the way you did and the, and the final goal and your first goal and then to win and going away with that, was that was cool. Those are moments yeah. you remember. Moments you remember and a lot of stories have already been told. I mean, I could sit here for the next three hours. You see, we want to we want you to be able to talk about Jamie. We want you to be able to talk about Jamie Daniels Foundation. We want you to be able to talk about Jamie. So, um, can I? I am just going to leave you the floor. I think we, uh, like I said, we just want to know about Jamie. Well, I won't go through all the details because uh, that would would take me the hour speaking engagements that I do. But uh, Jamie was just a, a loving kid, as loyal as could be. I think. Jamie, growing up, thought he was stupid, but he wasn't. Um, He felt, you know, pressure, anxiety, like kids do today. And uh, even through high school, uh, tell you how smart he was in that he, we took him to a doctor uh, that Jamie faked the test, uh, needing more time on tests in school because he thought he was stupid. So he faked the test to get the Adderall. 
that he couldn't remember things. Uh, we know he did because Jamie told us later he did, and we thought he did. We were against him being on Adderall, which, uh, you know, helps you study more, and so many kids are on it now and abuse it. I hate Adderall. Anyway, he got Adderall, got through high school, and then in his freshman year uh, in college, someone turned him in his frat uh, onto opioids. And Jamie left the dorm because all his friends were in the frat, his friends with kids a year older at Michigan State, so we moved him out of the dorm into the frat. In hindsight, that may have been a mistake. But um, when he was there, kids said, well, you know, a doctor prescribed this. It can't hurt you. Well, within five days, um, Jamie was hooked on opioids. Never did needles, scared the hell out of him or anything like that. So it's not like Jamie woke up one day and said, uh, I want to be a drug addict. I want to screw up the rest of my life. Sometimes it happens. Some are susceptible, some are not. Um, but we believe it started with the Adderall and feeling better about himself. And then sure enough, when, you know, Scott Oak from Hockey Night in Canada lost his son, Bruce, his son, Darcy, is a fantastic illusionist. Um, he lost Bruce, I think, four years before Jamie left us. And um, Scott was one of the first to call me when he heard about Jamie. We lost Jamie December 7th of 2016. And uh, Scott called me and he said, you know, when Jamie was at college, did he say he couldn't get into this bar or he needed a cover charge to get in, didn't have money? I said, Lord knows. We seemed to give him enough money, but it was never ending. And he said, right, because that $25 um, when he you know, would sell the Adderall and it wasn't enough for the opioid pill, the $25 would cover an opioid pill. And uh, addicts can do whatever they can to get whatever they can, and they can lie like that. They can turn it on a dime. Boy, he could turn it around. No, I'm not high, um, but he would be. And somehow graduated from Michigan State with a, a 3.5, um, and a year or so later was at summer camp and we thought he was using and then he'd always deny, but his personality changed. He became mean, he became ornery, he'd become moody. And this is for parents whose kids and you wonder, um, listen, he'd already graduated, so he's away at school. We didn't see how much homework he's doing or wasn't. Um, but during his time there, he had great time too. He was working for the Michigan State Spartans. He was doing their video. He was close with the basketball team from Gary Harris and Denzel Valentine. He'd be in the room with the guys after games. He was that type of personality. When when they were in the, uh, the Final Four, I mean, there was a party and Jamie would call some of the guys and they came back to Michigan State. They were at his frat house. Why? Because Jamie was there. And he was friends with all the guys. I, I contend he was probably also doing some of their homework for them, but that's another story. Jamie was just a personable, loving kid. His laugh was infectious. And that's why we do what is called a roast or comedy nights because Jamie loved to laugh and we loved to laugh along with him. He was really a good, loyal, funny kid got hooked on opioids through no fault of his own. Sure, at that age, you should know not to take anything. I know that. But to his credit, and I'll fast forward here, when he had hurt his arm up at summer camp, and they gave him an opioid. And uh, after he had tried to wean himself off it, and he called me one day in tears, and he said, Dad, I need to go to rehab. And we were both in tears, and I said, I'll tell you, I've never been more proud of you in my life and he went to rehab here in Michigan for all but 11 days. And he wouldn't let me visit him because how would it look if uh, Jamie Daniels' father, the voice of the Red Wings, had a kid who was in rehab? I didn't care, but his mother went. We were divorced at the time, but obviously you're on board in that as we are now with the foundation. 
Um, Jamie didn't want me to see him. So after 11 days, when he left there, and I won't mention the facility, but when he left there, they said, well, you'd have to Google a therapist. This is all you get. But I had my son back. He came home and we're in the kitchen and we're talking like I hadn't talked to him in years. And, and we thought, oh my God, we're a success story. No, you're not. Because this is the rest of your friggin' life when you're addicted. And that's why there are 12-step programs. That's why there are meetings. You have to do this for the rest of your life. But in 2015 and 16, we didn't know what we know now. If only I knew then what I know now. I had no idea. And finally, when Jamie relapsed again, we didn't know he would, but he did. He had urine taped to his leg because we were drug testing him at home. And he went into the bathroom. He goes, Dad, you're making me nervous. Stand, like, can't stand right by the door. And then he'd hand me his urine and it wasn't warm. And I said, that's it. So Jamie went to rehab in Florida. We found a place that was respectable because you could be duped. And that's why our foundation will help in that regard, the Jamie Daniels Foundation, to get you the right place. But back then, we were Googling. We had no idea. But thankfully, his therapist here knew someone in Florida. Jamie was there. And after two weeks of intensive detox, which for those who may not know is the worst sickness of withdrawal you can ever go through. You don't want to use. Jamie didn't want to say every day, let me take, let me take another Oxycontin. Let me take an, an, another pill here. Let me see what I can do. Uh, I want to continue to be high. No, you don't want to, but your brain says, uh oh, if you don't, you're going to be sick as a dog, man. So that's what you're going through. So you do that not to be ill. And Jamie went through the detox. We didn't talk to him for two weeks. And for any parent who has a child going through detox and you know he's in a safe place, those are the only nights you get a good night's sleep. Because I wasn't waiting for that call at one in the morning or two in the morning that so many parents get. We knew we weren't getting. He was in Florida. And after three weeks or so or a month of intensive detox, then you move out. You get a job. And his therapist, Brian, called us and they're looking for places. We were in what is, unfortunately, we didn't know at the time what was the Florida shuffle, meaning you go to rehab, to rehab place, they entice you to go others, and it's called patient brokering. So you find someone like Jamie with good insurance, you'll get to one place, someone entices you to go to another with cheap rent, where we were paying $245 a week for Jamie not including food, just to be there with drug testing. And Jamie was there for seven months. He was working at a law firm. So he'd pay for three of the weeks. I would pay for one. He was doing well, 228 days sober. And for those who are in sobriety, the days matter. 228 days for Jamie sobriety. Until he got patient brokered by some kid who would get money to bring someone with good insurance to a house that was anything but sober. Because that house, so-called sober home, and there were plenty in Delray Beach and Pompano Beach and West Palm Beach, Florida. And David Ehrenberg, who's a state attorney for West Palm Beach, Florida, who you can see on CNN all the time on the political side of things. Uh, he is now writing a book, and Jamie will be part of that. And when, when his therapist, Brian, took him to find the first place to live in for seven months that he was, I said to Brian, why is it so much money at $245 a week? Brian said, well, in Florida you get what you pay for. But in April of 2016, I didn't know to further that question, what do you mean? It means there are so many homes that are anything but sober and they dupe you. So that when you get to a home and in there and somebody's patient brokered you so some kid will get money or maybe skateboards or their free rent or $400 to bring a kid in, that home will send you to a doctor who will send you for blood work. 
And then through the labs, they will dupe the insurance agency. So there's kickback to the home and they make money on the blood work. That's what happens. We were getting tests. I was getting bills for $17,000. They call it liquid gold for Jamie peeing in a cup. Totally unnecessary tests. So when we got these tests and after Jamie had passed, um, after he got patient brokered, left the sober home, went to another home, and ultimately in that home, that doctor who he went to see put him on Xanax. You don't put a recovering addict on Xanax. Jamie should have known better, but he had anxiety meds. And I said, Jamie, you can't keep switching anxiety meds, man. And the doctor put him on that. And the day later, feeling good about himself, someone in that home gave Jamie a pill, which was laced with fentanyl, and Jamie died in his sleep. I had spoken to Jamie that night. We were in Winnipeg, and I just went back there. Every year I go back there and stand outside the room, it hits me. Um, I had spoken to Jamie that night, and he said to me, he said, uh, you guys must have gotten murdered tonight. And I said, no, what did you watch? And he said, well, I watched the first period, and we were losing to the Jets. And I talked to him after almost every game. And I said, no, actually, we came back. Where were you? And he said, I was outside painting the wheels of my car. And I said, oh, no, you didn't. He goes, Dad, they're all black. It's too dark to take pictures now. I'll take the pictures when I get to work in the morning. You'll love it. I'll send them to you. I said, I won't, whatever. And as Jamie always said, I love you, bye. And I said, love you, bye. And uh, he never woke up that night. And they waited an hour to uh, call the paramedics because they had to hide all the drugs in his house. Jamie's computer was gone. His headset was gone. And ESPN E60 did a documentary on Jamie's life in April of uh, 2017, I believe, no, April of 2018. And uh, in that, they found the kid who patient brokered him, even though he denied that. But the kid's name was Cade who found Jamie, brought him to that house. And Jamie was so sweet. I remember him the first day he was there. Dad, I met this kid, Cade. I didn't want him switching homes, but he did. You know, he's 23. You know, 23-year-olds, right? They know everything. Dad, I got this. I got this. And I said, where are you now? He said, I'm at Target. I said, why are you at Target? Well, the kid who brought me to this home, Dad, he's a good kid, Cade, and he's got no money, and his dad killed himself, so I gave him some money to go in and buy some T-shirts. That was my son. And that kid was ultimately the one who brought him there. And uh, he didn't wake up. And then the investigation began. And to tell you, it took us almost, well, you've got toxicology reports. He died December 7th of 2016. You get toxicology in April. I mean, we sort of knew what happened. We didn't tell his story. Nobody really knew where Jamie was. We said he was working in Florida. The shame and stigma can preclude recovery. And that's what we talk about addiction. We have to talk about it. And that's what we tell people, the Jamie Daniels Foundation. Can you imagine that call on December 7th of 16 when I told my two brothers and my sister, uh, my siblings who are much older than me, that Jamie had died? What are you talking about? They spoke to him from Florida. We just told them he was working, which he was. He was studying for his LSATs. He was working at a law firm. He was a clerk. They loved him there. And then when he didn't show up for four days, we didn't even have the number to the law firm. We had to find it through police investigators, and they sent huge bouquets of flowers to our house. They just absolutely loved him, and they had no idea. So Jamie didn't want that past, and that's too often now where the kids don't want that shame. They don't want that stigma. They want to think they could do it on their own. They can't. You need meetings. You need community. You need family. And if you've got someone in your family that's struggling, tell people. It's the best thing you can do, and I know that from experience. And if you need to tell people Jamie Daniels' story, and this is how he died because the Daniels fucked up, and they didn't tell enough people because they acquiesced to his son's wishes and didn't tell people, don't do that. Tell people. We need to talk about that. 
You know, we say that the brain isn't the only organ affected by opioids. It also breaks families' hearts. And it does. So that, that's, that's Jamie's story. It's, uh, I mean, I obviously knew, like, because I was obviously there in 2016 with you. I remember everything. Like, I remember it happening. I remember how tragic it was. But as this process, as we talk now and doing a little bit of re- finding out that story behind it, and I remember reading about it a little while back too. And it's like the idea that there was people that you were relying on too, and that you're trusting that are now doing things where there's just a total lack of respect to life mm-hmm. and knowing like the amount of pain they're putting people in just for, for money is, is, is wild. And I don't know if this is like a, a fair question, but like, how is like the grieving process when you feel that like helplessness that people weren't like you were doing what you could to help, but then you, the people that you were sending them to were just kind of like, it was like backstabbing, right? Yeah. yeah you, I don't know. I, I don't want you to divulge well, too much information or anything, but that just, that's what stuck out to me right away. I can divulge whatever you like. I mean, there, there's anger there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, some people who are there for you and those who won't, but I got to say most people were there. Uh, some people may look at you differently or judge you. And I know at the time I was thinking people aren't looking, Hey, there's Ken Daniels, Red Wing announcer. There's Ken Daniels whose son died from using drugs. But if they need to tell the story, that's okay. Um, I, you know, I always say empathy. Empathy is the highest form of knowledge because it comes without judgment. Mm-hmm. Don't judge. You don't know what it's like. And if it's not happening in your home, good for you because it may be happening two or three doors down and nobody's perfect. Everybody's got their shit. And we, we realize that. We lived it. So I guess the, the, the point of your story, and I, I was getting to a point there, um, you, you just have to talk about it and people rallied around it and we tried to hide it. And in terms of the anger, I guess that was your point there. Yes, you're angry at the time and we didn't know about patient brokering at the time. Fentanyl, mm-hmm. we didn't really know about fentanyl at the time and how it's coming in and still is to this day and the U.S. government is trying to act upon it. And it took a long time until the ESPN investigation and I don't know how you find it, but there's also American Greed out there. Um, I don't know whether it was through CNN did a whole series on it too. It's on television. There are movies that have been made um, all about this too. And one wonderful one, I'm looking over at the book Dope Sick with Michael Keaton, uh, did it and won Emmy Awards for it. it. It breaks my heart when I see the police officer go up to the door because that's exactly what happened here. Um, so there is anger, but Dr. Michael Lagotti, who had been one of Jamie's doctor that ESPN interviewed at the time, and he said his doctor number was stolen, he wouldn't forge Jamie's signature. But when Jamie came in with us in uh, November of uh, 2016 over Thanksgiving, and I got a picture of Jamie with the great Bob Cole uh, at Joe Lewis Arena, and Jamie went back to prove he was here, and sure enough, we were getting $20,000, $15,000, $10,000 on tests that Dr. Michael Lagotti had performed on Jamie with his signature when he wasn't even in Florida to have it done. Well, ultimately, and we were just this past January, Jamie's mom and I were in a Florida federal court as uh, Dr. Lagotti got sentenced to 20 years in federal prison for defrauding the insurance industry. One of Jamie's doctor, Jamie was one of five indictments against him for close to $800 million, of which he had to make restitution of $172 million. So we were there and you're sitting behind 
I don't even want to call him a doctor, behind Ligotti, and he's saying, you know, how sorry he is, and he got carried away. Wonderful. And we weren't the only ones there, and, and, and others spoke, but we were there. So does that give you satisfaction? Not really. We watched him walk out of court, and he still isn't even in jail yet. Um, and this was January. He's, they're still delaying these to get him out. He's testifying against others, and we hope he'll testify against Jamie's other doctor as well. So does it give you closure? I guess it does. Are you ever satisfied? No. You just see the greed in people, really. $800 million and how many lives you cost to families. You know, do unto others as you want done to you, man. And if you... It's, it's just a brutal world and it's, it's a lack of a trust. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you have a trust going into the business that you're in, but he's, he's just one of many, Kenneth Chapman, who was down there and he had owned the sober home, which wasn't sober, where Jamie last lived journey to recovery. Kenneth Chapman is serving, I believe it was 27 years and is still in jail. And you can look up Kenneth Chapman and you'll see that on American Greed and see his story or watch Dope Sick. Um, and see that story. There's Body Brokers on Amazon Prime. I haven't had the heart to watch Body Brokers. Um, you know, that was part of Jamie's story. He got patient brokered or body brokered, meaning you're taken from one place to another, enticement of goods, and then they help bilk the insurance industry because of you. And then ultimately you, you wind up dead in most cases. Mm -hmm. So uh, all those things people can see to educate themselves. And if you have any struggle at home, all I'll say is tell Jamie's story. And learn mm -hmm. from it because 90% of those people who are even addicted today started with opioids prior to the age of 18. And the Jamie Daniels Foundation, jamiedanielsfoundation.org, we are in um, grades one through four now. And now we're moving into middle schools to teach kids not about the drugs, but about mental health and wellness and yoga and mindfulness. So that is it going to prevent you from ever using drugs? Maybe not. But you have another way to set your mind straight, or if you're being bullied, um, mm -hmm. you feel insecure about something. There's another way to take your mind. So we're teaching that in West Bloomfield, Michigan here, and, and through what is coming down from the federal government, they've given us $30,000 to help. So where we started with 3,000, now we're 30 and maybe more. We've granted close to a half a million dollars to nine Michigan colleges. Our foundation started just two years after Jamie passed because the first nine months, we didn't tell anybody until Craig Cussens of The Athletic called me, was writing about my book to give me promotion. At the end, he said, how you doing? We hadn't talked about Jamie. And it was like Joey from Friends. How you doing? It was how you doing? And I realized, mm -hmm. you know what? In the back of my head, Jamie said, Dad, you can talk about this. So sure enough, he wrote the story in The Athletic. And then ESPN followed that. And then Valley Sports Detroit or Fox Sports at the time did a story for Jamie on that. And then we started the foundation. And Darren Pang said, everyone's doing golf tournaments. Why don't you do a roast? Jamie loved to laugh. So we're doing our fourth roast this August 26th at Motor City Casino. We roasted Mickey Live and then Brett Hull and Scotty Bowman virtually on television. Thankfully, I have the platform of Valley Sports Detroit to be able to do this. Many people don't. So I'm trying to use that platform to get the word out. I, mm -hmm. I, am I lucky in that way? Yeah, it has nothing to do with preparation or opportunity. I'm fortunate that I have that platform. And now we're doing the roast and toast of Thomas Holmstrom and Nick Lidstrom. Obviously, we're roasting Homer, toasting Nick. <laughs> because he's the perfect humor, but uh, Otter, Steve Ott is going to be one of the roasters and Chris Draper and Ian Bag and Jim Ralph, Doc Emmerich for the second time is going to be the MC. 
And, you know, there's live auction. Marty Walsh, uh, the head of the PA, just did a beautiful video, and he's been in sobriety for a dozen years from, from alcohol. So, you know, you try to relate to people who can talk about that. So we're going to talk about our mission and how we need to talk about it. Um, his sister Arlen, his best friend, my daughter, she's going to speak there. So it's about all the people that we've helped in recovery. Nine Michigan colleges now, close to a half a million dollars have been granted for full-time recovery coaches. We'd like to take it beyond here. We are working getting into Ohio now. We have the Adolescent uh, Recovery Center in Troy, Michigan at Children's Hospital of Michigan Foundation with our psychiatrist, Dr. Matt LaCasse. And if you need help and you're struggling, doesn't matter the ability to self-pay, you can go there, you're covered. So things like that, that's what the Jamie Daniels Foundation does. And since we started the foundation in June of 2018 with this event, we'll go over $2 million raised. So people do care. I know when you talk about substance use disorder, it's not like cancer. It's, it's, it's different because people will have, be more readily to give and they have this perception that just because you use drugs, you wanted to. No, you experimented and then you got hooked and you couldn't get off it. Well, again, have some empathy. It's different. And we talk about mental wellness. I'd rather say mental wellness than mental illness. I prefer mental wellness. We do it at the foundation. So why do we talk about anything below the shoulders? any type of cancer or anything that's gone wrong in your life. Why do we talk about that? But anything that involves the brain and how the cognitive responses have been altered. The brain has been altered. I mean, the frontal lobe of the brain in any kid, and Jamie was 20, 21, 22, 23 when he passed, is probably not fully formed to your 25. You can't make those decisions. And now <laughs> the, the cognitive response, the ability to say no, it just isn't there. So we have to train it teach it younger. That's why we're getting into from the early grades and now into middle school and high school and we go out public speaking. That's what we do. JamieDanielsFoundation.org if you want to know more about us. Yeah, well, I um, I think the best uh, best way to put it for me is difficult roads lead to beautiful destinations. For me, Ken, this is a beautiful destination. Being able to hear, you know, your story and being able to hear what you've been able to do with that uh, with the foundation and I think uh, you hit the nail on the head I think empathy is uh, the most powerful thing and we had a guest on Dr. Emily Anholt who who shared that you know people struggling in your in your life and people who maybe don't want to open up and maybe people who are closed off I mean the best thing that you can do is empathize with them by sharing your story or sharing somebody else's story or sharing Jamie's story and having that that empathy created and having that culture of empathy created is such a is such a beautiful way to to help make that first step um and I I Obviously, you know, with with our accident and everything, the hockey world, the hockey community is is we're biased because it is such a special community, and the amount of individuals that took the time, like Stevie Y, or you know, I could list off the amount of individuals that just took the time. And I want to know, obviously, the grieving process is a is a very difficult thing, and to be able to have a community like the hockey community, but also have a community that, you know, has your Marty Walsh's of the world that have been through it and are going through recovery. I mean, how did that impact you? How did that impact you to know that, you know, you have your hockey community, but you also have individuals that 
like Scott Oak that have been through it and are willing to help and are willing to take those steps and are willing to make those phone calls. I mean, talk to us about that impact. That is huge. And I, and I know from those who've lost a child, and it just doesn't have to be through addiction or anything else. I mean, any, we're, we're not supposed to lose a child. And I, through these speaking engagements, or you, or you see people at our events who come out, and when there's a hug, when a parent says, can I give you a hug? Man, it's a hug like no other. Because you know. And, and when people say, I can't imagine, Damn right, you can't, you just can't. And you get a hug from that, from somebody who's lost, you just know and it's a longer hug than you'd ever have otherwise. But it makes you feel good because you get the feeling that that person knows. And the hockey community, I'll say, and I, and I know Columbus was in town. It was the first game after Jamie died and it passed on the 6th. And I think Columbus was here of December 9th of that year. And John Tortorella called me about an hour before the game. And I, I've known John, didn't know him well. I don't even know if that time he had my number, but we know each other because we think we look alike, especially if I had the goatee and the mustache. So <laughs> he calls himself the better looking older brother. And uh, so Torts called me about an hour before the game. I'll never forget that. And Ken Hitchcock. And even driving Mike Babcock and I pulled over to the side of the road. And I know Mike's had his issues too with the mental health and people not happy with what he's done in the past. And hopefully he's learned from that too. I, I hope that he has. And I think that he has. But even knowing outside of that, the people who do reach out for you and, and, and get it and can talk to you and the hockey community rallying and what the Red Wings have done and what Fox and now Bally Sports have done and what the Marion and Michael and Marion Illich Foundation have done and have given us so much over the years and to be there for us and allow us to do what we, we do in our, our events that we raise, and whether it be comedy nights with Motor City Casino for, you know, that Mrs. Illich is involved in. And they know because they lost their son, Ron. So even when I hug Mrs. High, they know. Or even Denise, when I talk to Denise, they know. They get it. So the hockey community is a wonderful community and I don't know where I'd be without them. And plus being able to tell Jamie or mention Jamie. And sometimes I can now like even Alex Debrinkit, who's now a Red Wing, and he's wearing number 93 for his uh, older brother's birth year, and that was also Jamie's birth year. And I know when Alex was 13 years old and Jamie would be probably four years older than Alex, Jamie was a goalie and was playing roller hockey and uh, played against Alex Debrinkit. And I went to watch one of his games, and I saw the little guy, and I said, who's the little guy who was playing? And Jamie said, that's Debrinkit. And uh, I said, he's pretty good. He goes, pretty good. Dad, I've seen him play hockey. The kid's going to be a stud. And he was 13 or 14. I go, Jamie, he's five foot three. He's shorter than you. <laughs> Jamie wasn't a big guy. He came by it honestly. I'm five seven. He wound up to be five nine. But he said, Dad, Debrinket's going to be a friggin' stud. I'm telling you. Well, he was right. So I told Alex that story, and now Alex is in Detroit. And you know what? Every time I see that number 93, I know he's thinking of his older brother. I'm thinking he's wearing it. And Jamie knew him. And oh my God, makes my heart warm. So I was so mm -hmm. excited. I was texting Alex before he came here and I was saying, let's get that deal done, you know, and he'd send the heart back. So I'm just happy. Little things like that. But again, that's that's the, the hockey community. And even asking Lidstrom and Holmstrom to come in from Sweden to be able to do this or asking Scotty Bowman, who would have been here this year, but his family for his 90th birthday is taking him on a Disney cruise, all the grandkids, so he can't be here. And Scotty would have been, and he's helped us every year. Or reaching out to Ken Hitchcock and Brian Burke, 
who's uh, so strong also in the, in the mental health world, and uh, Kelly Chase, all these guys, and, and Panger, who just stepped up for me, and Chris Draper, and, and doing this, and Steve, the hockey world, you ask them, nine times out of 10, I know those who haven't, those I'll keep silent, but most, I'd say 95% of the people are right there with you, and it's out of their time, and that's why I try to do the same. People who want to get into broadcasting, and I don't know them, Ken, can you help this? I'll always. I will always call because I had that and that's how I got in the business. And now I know for doing Jamie and I'm bugging people, hey, I'm raising money. I'm asking people to give us 5,000 and 10,000. And when I asked Torts to actually, when we were planning on doing it live to Rose Scotty before we had to go virtual because COVID hit. And I remember I'm in Chicago visiting my daughter, Arlen, who's now a nurse at Northwestern Hospital in Chicago. And I was, uh, I remember walking just outside her apartment, the phone rings and it's torts. And he said, Kenny, I've thought about it. I hate doing these friggin' things, roasting. I just can't, how about I just send you a check? Sure enough, he did. A nice big fat check arrives from torts. So people who don't want to help, I think that's okay. Write a check if you don't want to. I don't want to ask for it, but if you do, that's wonderful. Or people who ask me to get into the business, I will always take that call. And people who want to meet with me, how do you get in the business, so and so and so. I so yeah, because I'm asking people to help the same way. Why can't we just help one another? Just like you guys are in doing what you're doing. And Ty, you know, I always have sticks out on the anniversary all the time. You just don't forget, you just don't forget stuff like that. So Hopefully it keeps going and, and we can we know we're saving lives and we get notes from people who are on campus now of the nine campuses we have, whether it be Michigan State or Michigan or Central or Ferris State, etc. We know we get letters from people. We wouldn't be here without you. Thank you for what you're doing. You saved my life. Oh my God, it's just in tears when I hear stuff like that. But it warms your heart and I know that Jamie is saving lives. And because of the hockey community, we can get the word out that many others who've lost kids haven't been able to, but through us or their hold hockey fundraisers. I was just out in one that made in Michigan hockey did one out in Brighton. I went and I dropped the puck and, and went out there and did the announcements for the starting teams and some great players who are summer with the East coast league and American hockey league and trying to make their way to the NHL great hockey. And you just go and you spread the word. And what is it? A 40 minute drive and there and back and you're seeing people big deal. I mean, it's all we got is time. Jamie, when, mm -hmm. when Jamie used to say to me in the summer, I'd be bored and my golf game wasn't getting better and still isn't. But Jamie would say to me, God, dad, you need a summer job. And unfortunately he gave me one. So that's yeah. what we're doing. And remember his name. And I tell people and those who've lost a kid and it's going to be a while. And I got a note from a kid who, uh, who, who lost his brother and the family until we told him, I said, say his name. He's hearing you and you have to trust that and trust it. It'll become music to you. And that's why the Jamie Daniels Foundation is a music note. Jamie loved music and he had a tattoo on him um, with the initials there and the music note. And that's our, our foundation logo because it is wonderful music to us every time we say his name. And music was such a big part. He loved the rap music. We used to argue all the time that he told me Eminem was more talented than Paul McCartney. <laughs> I had reason to dispute that a little, but, you know, we used to argue about that. And then, the, you know, the, the Marshall Mathers Foundation gave us $10,000 a few years ago because Marshall's been in sobriety now for a dozen years or so, if not longer. And God bless him for that and, and what he's done to spread the word, too. So um, it's music to us every time we can say Jamie's name. I love to do it. I'm inspired to do it. Tell Jamie's story. Go to a speaking engagement. Say his name. I may cry at times about it. But I urge anyone who's lost, even a father, a mother, talk about them. It helps. Mm -hmm. Think of the good memories. It helps. Mm -hmm. 
We tell, I, I speak engagements like I did here. You tell enough of the bad crap. Hopefully you tell the good stuff too and how he made you laugh or funny stories or whether it be Beatles or I mean, you got him. And that's what's mm-hmm. going to get us through. Otherwise you're going to wallow in your own and that's not good. Yeah. Ken, that's amazing. I mean, we thank you so much for, for sharing, sharing this stuff with us and, and coming on. I mean, like I said, you've always been good to me and, and I've, I, I've enjoyed my time around you and then what you're doing now, it's just amplifying, uh, the, that effect you have on people. So we thank you a ton. Um, Ty, you can kind of close out here, but go yeah. ahead. Uh, I will be taking a look at the NHL schedule and, uh, when Detroit's in town, count me in for a, a dinner date because I think, uh, I, I think we could talk about grief and, uh, talk, looking up into the sky and saying names and, um, the amount of times that I'm the same way as you. I, I had a hard time believing it at the start, but I'm a I'm a firm believer that you know your people are here and, and saying their names and 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 being able to to do what you need to do and to latch onto that and you know whether it's my infatuation with bunnies and birds. Um, I mean, there's so many things that in the grieving process you never thought that you'd be doing, but I think we can uh, we can all relate that. Reef is a, a complex thing and to be able to say their name and to be able to inspire and to be able to connect with people is, uh, is such a beautiful thing. Um, Ken, I, I truly can't thank you enough um, for being able to do what you do. Um, please, for anybody, the Jamie Daniels Foundation.org, uh, just amazing. Just, it's just truly, truly special. And I, I think it goes without saying, but Riley and I will always be in your corner and I will proudly go into my car as I head off to work in the next little bit and put on September by earth, wind and fire. And I will start, <laughs> I will start my day tomorrow with my Beatles record. Um, yes, Ken, again, love it. Thank you. <laughs> Just saw earth, wind and fire the, the other night with Lionel Richie, uh, in Toronto, uh, unbelievable. Love them both. Uh, and the Beatles, I'll hold you to that. Uh, in Calgary. I would love to do that. And my brother lives in Calgary too. And tragedy in his family. If you go to KenDanielsTV.com and even probably at our website, JamieDanielsFoundation.org, there's a song on there called Jamie's Song. And uh, his stepson, Landon, wrote that music producer in Calgary. A great writer, a wonderful kid. Uh, schizophrenia he suffered from and took his life uh, just about a year and a half ago. So my brother's knowing that end I've known it too, and uh, boy, it's a struggle. Um, we all have our struggles, and uh, it's how we get through, and we, we need one another. Uh, you know what? And our good friend uh, Ron McLean always had said, we're not here to see through one another. We're here to see one another through. And I don't know if he, he wasn't the originator of that, but I've taken that, and I do that in a lot of my speaking engagements too. But isn't that the truth? If we didn't just try to see through one another, but see one another through. And uh, Ty, I'll hold you that in Calgary. And Riley, you know, you're ever around. Call me, you're ever in Detroit. Come on up, come on up to the gondola Mm -hmm. and you'll see how Mick and I love each other and uh, love our time. So you're welcome to join us there too. So thank you guys. That was the perfect way to end. Thanks, Ken. This episode is also brought to you by BioSteel. Zero sugar, essential electrolytes, great taste and pure hydration. Join the likes of Connor McDavid, Alec Manoa, Andrew Wiggins, Brooke Henderson, and Patrick Mahomes on the BioSteel train. It's time for you to try BioSteel with our SYM25 discount code that will get you 25% off at checkout. Yep, that's right. I will gladly attest to this being the best hydration drink on the market. 
SYM25 at checkout.